is Testimonies of Life and Related Stories, the podcast. We look forward to you being with us as we recount stories of conversion and life experiences as told by those who were there. Today we have John with us. He takes us through his youthful experience in Southeast Asia, where he encounters the highs and lows of a carefree lifestyle. After confronting death at the hands of a machine gun wielding bandit, he begins a search for life's meaning and ends up in a cave in Rajasthan. Welcome to the podcast, John. Well, I grew up um, in a Catholic family. My mum and dad had six kids, so I was the oldest of siblings and I lived in um, Tropical Townsville. Had a pretty idyllic lifestyle living across from a beach and we had the town common behind us. Um, things took a downward spiral though in our life when a big cyclone came through in 1971, uh, Cyclone Althea, and it um, wrecked our house, tore at the roof uh, Christmas Eve. All our Christmas presents um, blew out the back of the house. Uh, the, one of the big beams speared through the tiles and then the concrete under the um, bathroom and then through the hardwood floor right next to me, only six inches away. So um, probably suffered a bit of post-traumatic stress from that incident. And my dad <clears throat> started drinking, became an alcoholic and family life was pretty pretty shattered. I just wanted mum and dad to split up so I could go and live with one of them and have peace and quiet. The... Um, Spiritual background was I was brought up in Catholic school in primary school and I honour the, the old nuns for teaching me about God but it was religion and I, I never actually got to meet or experience God or have any real experience of um, supernatural or the spiritual. After school I um, joined a newspaper as a journalist and uh, did a cadetship Took on a lot of corruption, took on the police that were pretty out of control in that city. I um, represented some indigenous people who'd been beaten up. Got myself in a bit of hot water, really. I was a bit of a hothead. I was a union rep for the for the journalist in that um, newspaper. And started drinking heavily, smoking a lot of dope. No, hard drugs, but I, I would drink six or seven schooners at lunchtime and I was fast becoming an alcoholic. I was going out with a girl and after about three years we split up and I was pretty distraught, just empty, um, had no direction. And one night I went home for, um, I was on night shifts, about seven o'clock at night I went home and there was a documentary. I just caught a glimpse of the steam train chugging through India and there was orange saris and saffron robes and it just looked so exotic and cows wandering across the track and people on the roof of the train and something in me just slept and I thought, I want to go to India. So I rang mum, probably woke her up when I got home from work and she was used to me getting wild ideas and I'll talk to you in the morning. But the next day I resigned <laughs> and I had... Um, 
some money saved up and I hitchhiked up to Darwin, which was amazing. I got picked up by an armed robber in an old unregistered pie van and um, just had lots of adventures. Um, cruised on a, um, a yacht out of Darwin up through Indonesia and dropped in at the Kupang and the um, top end of Timor and um, hung around in, in Bali and did, did all the um, wild, crazy Aussie things that happen over there. By this stage, my mum and dad had reconciled and they'd both become Christians. Um, my mum had got uh, rheumatic fever and was pretty close to dying and, and cried out to God to heal her um, and, and got healed miraculously. My dad had a um, Citroen car and there's only one mechanic in town that could fix it and he happened to be an Assemblies of God pastor um, and part-time mechanic. He got saved at a uh, full gospel business sons meeting. So that brought in a big change in mum and dad's life, but it was too late for me. I, um, I'd, I'd had a taste of freedom and I'd thought about Christianity and it just seemed like a big list of things you couldn't do. You, you couldn't drink and you couldn't swear and you couldn't gamble and you couldn't go with girls and it just sounded, well, yeah, just like a big list of uh, constraints and I was into freedom, so I thought. It wasn't until years later that I would see a lot of those rules were to protect myself and stop me from harming others. And um, But at that stage I didn't have the wisdom to see that. I just saw it as a constraint. And, and to be honest... Uh, I ended up getting expelled from Catholic school, ironically because I had long hair and I had an argument with the headmaster over, well, didn't Jesus have long hair? I just used that as an excuse, obviously. Um, but he didn't like the way I said it, so eventually they found an excuse to get me chucked out of the school, so I went to a state system. Yeah, so that was um, a little bit of the backstory. So, so here I so am. So, John, just, just briefly then. About what years you ended up in, you said you are in Bali, yeah. you know, on your way to India. About what year would have that been? It would have been about uh, 1982 and then okay. into 1983 I travelled up through um, Indonesia and went to Sumatra in uh, Malaysia and then I went to Thailand. And up in Thailand I got into heavy drugs. Um, I found out that the opium up there is very cheap and so with a bunch of other backpackers we booked a, a, a guide, a tour guide to take us up through the Golden Triangle. We'd been warned not to go up there, it was very dangerous. A lot of um, terrorists that slip across the border into Burma. But anyway, we went, uh, so there's a group of five of us and um, by, ch by chance, just happenstance, we were all journalists. Um, there was a Pommy couple, Penny and Bob. They were from the Hong Kong Times. There was Eric who was from um, Canada. He was a journalist. There was Steve, another guy who was an Aussie and myself. So it was supposed to be a week-long tour. I... I Left my traveller's checks, my passport and my 
um, Minolta SLR camera in a safe back at the hotel and I just stuffed a $100 American um, note down one of my socks and that was what I was going to live on for the week. And given that there had been stories of people being robbed and killed up there, I didn't want to take all my money. So anyway, we set off into the jungles and we had a couple of days of um, getting high as kites. It was about $2 a day. You could get as um, off your face as you wanted to. And I describe um, drug taking honestly because I've got five kids and I don't want them to experience drugs and say, oh, Dad said it was horrible and it's actually pleasant. So I do say that it, it brings a level of euphoria but it's very short-lived and you have to pay back. There's always a debt with drugs. You've got to pay back the short-term artificial bliss with um, depression, um, your health and your wealth. So there's always a downside. So it's a bit like um, a seesaw and you, get, you can't cheat nature is an old saying. Um, a high-pressure system will always want to equalise with a low-pressure system. So if you get too high, you're going to end up going low. Um, so that's my experience. So anyway, um, day tour, uh, day two of the tour, a uh, beautiful day. We're up in the jungle and we're going early in the morning. We're not um, drunk or drugged. And um, I need to explain that because of what happens next. And I see some soldiers coming towards us from uh, each side of the track. And then I look over my shoulder and there's um, some more what look like soldiers. They're wearing army khaki. Uh, so the two in front had machine guns. The one behind me had a machete and the other guy had a pistol. And initially, like just for the first 20 seconds, I thought, oh, good. The Thai army's up here patrolling the border. That's fine, you know, protecting the tourists. And then I realised we'd been ambushed. It was a classic pincer move. And um, they had they pulled balaclavas down there over their heads when they got a bit closer. And um, so we were all strip searched. Um, I was holding out. I had my $100 in my um, sock. And they stole my Swiss Army knife, which was my prized possession, used it to open tins and all sorts of things when you travel, screwdrivers and saws and I was very sad to see that go and then suddenly the mood turned and the guy with the machine gun, I saw him unlock it and I'd had experience with guns because my dad was off a cattle property and we'd been out shooting feral animals and I knew he was serious and I saw him starting to shake a little bit like he was nervous. And then it got really weird because he, he levelled the gun right at me from about three or four paces away and it was like as if time went really slow and I was watching it in slow motion. I know it's a bit of a cliche but it was almost like I was out of my body um, watching this all transpire. And in the midst of that I felt for the first time in my whole life a supernatural being um some would say it's an angel I, I never saw it i just sensed it i just felt almost like wings wrapping around me and this 
uh, euphoria and, and a sense that I wasn't going to die. In fact, from that moment, the fear of dying actually evaporated for, for many, well, right to this day, um, which doesn't make sense. It's, it's um, counterintuitive. So then I motioned that to my sock and um, I, I just said, look, you know, can I put my hands down? I couldn't speak to him but I just did charade-type movements and handed over the $100 and then they ran off up the track and, and disappeared into the um, rainforest. the same time, our guide ran the other way um, and we didn't know if he'd set us up and, 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 and been paid by the bandits or if he was going to get help. So we don't have... This is pre-internet, so there's no mobile phones, there's no Google Maps. We don't know where the heck we are. We just know we're right up where the Karen Hill tribes are and it's there's no roads, it's just little donkey tracks everywhere. So we just went into the cornfield that was near where we got robbed and um, one of the guys had a bag of um, dope. So we just sm sm started smoking dope, which probably wasn't a smart thing to do, but... Um, and after about an hour, we heard some noise, heard some bells tinkling and people talking. And through the, t it was quite tall corn, we saw some Chinese traders and they had um, mules loaded up with blankets and trinkets and um, cooking pots and bags of rice and all sorts. So we came out very slowly, put our hands up and through charade type movements in indicated to them that um, we've been held up and we emptied our pockets uh, to show them we had no money left. Then they started pulling out all these guns. One of them even had a grenade. Um, they had submachine guns. Um, they were just showing us that they were armed to the teeth and that they wouldn't be ambushed. But we thought they were going to shoot us and I thought, well, I had a sinking feeling, oh, well, that's it, we've, we've got no money to give them. Um, but they just motioned for us to follow behind them and we had no other option. We, we had no water, we had no food. It was quite cold up there at night so we had no blankets. And after a couple of hours we reached a, a little village. Um, so this is probably up in the hills above Chiang Rai which is right in the very north of uh, Thailand. And the people were very hospitable which is very normal in Asia. They welcomed us in. I slept with no blanket on a very small um, palm mat. They offered us a bowl of rice and a couple of little bits of meat. And then after dinner they brought out the um, opium and we um, slept soundly off our faces and uh, woke in the morning to the Thai army arriving in a big four-wheel drive truck. And um, we were bundled into that and had about a 12-hour drive back to, to um, Bangkok, the capital of Thailand. We were interrogated because they thought we were drug dealers and when they realised that we were just hippie uh, tourists, um, they just gave us a stern warning. Um, but that near-death experience really stopped me in my tracks really because up to that point I'd been very brash and bold and 
arrogant and, um, you know, people have warned us you know, and I'd just rationalise it, it'll never happen to me. Well, it had. It had happened to me and I'd come within a whisker of dying. So I was preoccupied with thoughts of if I had died, would that be the end of it? Would Would that cease to be me? Or would I just um, turn into dust, dust to dust, ashes to ashes? Or is there a supernatural uh, spiritual world and would I go on in eternity or in some form? So it was just a question that was posed to me and I thought of heaven and I thought of hell, you know, concepts. And I started thinking, well, how do I get to heaven and how do I avoid going to hell? (laughs) And um, being a journalist, I just put it out as a task and I was going to research this and and find the answer. Uh, The problem was I I looked in every nook and cranny of New Age and um, Buddhism and Hinduism and even read a bit of the Quran and I was generally uh, uh, very genuine in in searching Um, and it was preoccupying most of my thinking, like I can honestly say I nearly went crazy trying to solve the riddle of life because there was so much that conflicted and I sort of realised that there had to be an ultimate truth, there had to be an ultimate religion because they're all so diverse. I mean there's not a lot in common between Muslim and, and Buddhist. There's a few little snippets of Buddhism that... Um, you can compare to the gospel about denying yourself and um, overcoming your evil desires. But, you know, I heard someone say the other day, you know, Buddha was a man who went around telling people how to live and um, living wisely. Whereas Jesus is a, a man who went around telling people how to live with wisdom, but he would take a bullet for you. That's the difference. But at that stage, I... I was early um, on my journey of faith and um, it's strange but in the Bible it says seek and you shall find, knock on the door will be opened. But I wasn't looking into Christianity because of my upbringing and I guess a, a prejudice that it was um, too constraining and too um, straight. I wanted something a bit more exotic. So long story short, um, I went to Nepal, I went to via Burma and Bangladesh but I ended up in Nepal trekking and I met up with a, um Aussie girl that I'd dumped um, in, a, in a fairly brutal way uh, after meeting her in Bali and travelling up to Thailand. Uh, merely for the fact that I wanted to just launch out on my own. I wanted to travel by myself for a while and not have my cousin Mark with me. Um, so Kim was a lovely girl and I probably did the wrong thing by her, but we met up and um, it was just plutonic. We just hiked up in the mountains and um, enjoyed the beautiful scenery. So um, after Nepal we split up again and I had a guidebook called Tony Wheeler's um, Guide to India and I got out to Rajasthan, which is a desert part in the north section of um, India. It's quite exotic. You've got old um, forts and um, 
very colourful clothing and the markets are just a blaze of colour and saffron and all the spices and it's just very exotic and a bit off the beaten track. Anyway, one of the pages it said, that, you know, if you're in town, go and see the um, the, the Elephant Cave and, and say hello to Yogi Raj was his name. So he, he was a, a Brahmin, which is the top caste of the Hindu. And he was a hippie type um, guru. So he, he met a lot of um, Westerners and they thought he was cute and took photos of him and bought him drugs. And um, I don't think I've ever met anyone who could consume so much hash as him and still not fall over. He, he was amazing. Lots of practice. Um, anyway, so I got talking to him and he's, he's, he sensed that I was searching and he said, if you become my disciple, I'll teach you about nirvana, which is bliss or, you know, spiritual enlightenment. So I didn't really know what that meant, but I said yes and um, I was up for an adventure. So I moved into this cave, uh, so I'll just describe it. So it's probably the size of a large lounge room. It's whitewashed. It's got a, a floor made of mud and a slurry of um, dried cow manure, which is quite spongy underfoot. And it had electricity. It had a single light bulb and um, the ga- gas cooker was used in the kitchen. It was very basic. And I had that little sort of alcove in one corner, which is my space. And um, so days were spent um, doing lots of yoga out in the desert, perched on big boulders around the cave. The cave was probably about 10 kilometres from the nearest village, so it was right out in the in the scrub. And um, I had, um, after probably three or four weeks, I took a vow to become a Hindu, I shaved my head, which is um, part of the ceremony. I burnt my old western grotty jeans and took on a sari and the tikka dot on my forehead and um, I started learning lots of rituals. Like every day I'd have to sweep the little altar in the cave, put fresh marigold flowers before um, the Hindu gods, elephant god and... Um, Krishna, and there's there's hundreds and thousands of deities in the Hindu religion, and I would do three or four hours of yoga and say all these prayers, and nothing was really happening, but it was a pretty cool place to hang out, and I paid this guy um, like a board for my food and and um, basic upkeep of the place which was agreed, and then after I'd been there for three months, um, <laughs> he had a um, a visiting French girlfriend. Now, he was 60, he had dreadlocks, uh, he was very fit from all this yoga and um, very intense guy, and this very attractive 20-ish um, French girlfriend was causing some ripples in the local village there was rumors that he was having a, an affair they're supposed to be celibate so they're very hot under the collar there and they could have actually lynched him uh, or, or beat him and he was trying to palm off this girlfriend onto me 
which was just super awkward. I didn't speak any French. <laughs> and um, so I declined that. And at about that time I caught him going through my backpack and realised that he'd been robbing me blind and my last travels check was gone. I, I had no cash. And um, this is pre-credit cards. This is pre-internet as I explained. And I had money in an account back in Australia but I... There was a process. I would have to telegram, send a telegram to my dad, transfer the money, which would take three or four business days, and then it would take a couple of days to clear, and then the money would be in rupees, and I'd show my passport and be able to get it out of the bank. But if I didn't have the $15 for the telegram, I was stuck. So here I was in a strange land, um, still had my passport, I was just fairly disillusioned and so he had a few of his Hindu mates coming around and they're having a puja which is just like a big party and smoking heaps of dope and had music, a zitar and they were dancing and I was just in the other end of the cave just dejected and thinking of, I'm so dumb, like this guy's just suckered me and I just said a prayer I said God if you're there if you exist I want to know you mm. and it was just a, a prayer off into the ether I didn't know whether it would get answered but I was genuinely seeking the truth after having been disillusioned with the setup in the cave and I heard a small faint impression in my mind and it said John stand up it wasn't audible, I didn't hear it with my ears, but it was a small, still voice would be the best way to describe it. And I was a hothead. I actually got angry with God. And I, I said, I've cried out to the God of the universe, if you're real, and you say, stand up. How dumb is that? That was the arrogance, I, that was the attitude I had. Then... I started reasoning and I thought, well, if I want to stand up, I just stand up. I don't say to myself, John, stand up. So maybe something in the in the universe is trying to communicate to me. And really, how hard is it to stand up? What have I got to lose? <laughs> so after I calmed down, I, I stood up and I described that as my first ever uh, step towards obedience. It was my first ever mm. act where I obeyed God. In my whole life, mm. I've been running all of my life from him. And in that instant, I had a vision of Jesus on the cross. And I'd heard somewhere on a radio or somewhere, you know, Jesus died for the sins of the world. But it, it was just a throwaway line. And then suddenly it hit me. He didn't just die for the sins of the world. He died for me. Mm. And I was overwhelmed with consciousness of my sin I'd rationalised a lot of things. I'd dulled my conscience and I just saw how I'd hurt people, hurt girlfriends. Um, but it wasn't a condemning, it was a conviction. It was not to beat me up and say how bad I was. It was, hey, you've been living this way. There's a better way to live. How about you change the way you're doing things and we'll... Can't apologise for that one and sort that out. So it had a redemptive um, flavour in it. 
when I saw Jesus, his eyes just burnt right through me. Like he knew me totally. Like he knew everything about my whole life. Mm. It was like he had x-ray vision and he was obviously in pain, but all I could feel was just an intense warmth, love, gentleness and, and compassion. Um, and I realised he was offering me all of his goodness and he was taking all of my yuck and this exchange was so simple. All I had to do was believe that what he was doing on the cross was to cover my sin and the punishment that I was due for all things I've done wrong, stealing and swearing and blaspheming and everything else. I've, I've probably broken most of the commandments. I hadn't killed anyone um, at that stage. So, And I'm feeling this intense love. It was almost like electricity. I wasn't stoned. I, I need to say that because uh, in case people question. It, it was um, the most beautiful experience, better than any drugs, better than sex, better than the best sunset. It was just the most beautiful encounter of the living, loving God who totally got me, who totally knew me. And <clears throat> there's a verse in the Bible which I've since read. It says, um, and this is eternal salvation, that you would know me. Jesus said those words, that you would know God and the one whom he has sent, which is Jesus. And in that moment, I didn't even know what the term born again was, but I was born again in a cave in India, um, in a haze of, of hash smoke with um, Hindu gods at one end of the um, building. So the grace of God can overcome anything. And, and God can find a way if we open up our heart. And that's, you know, we've just got to open up a fraction and he, he, he floods in and God is love. All those who love know God for God is love. And that's, that's as simple as it is. God is love. So I looked down and at, at my feet in, in, in one corner of the cave was a little red um, Gideon's Bible. So New Testament Psalms and Proverbs. Had cigarette holes all over the cover. People had defaced it. And randomly I pick it up and it's the red letter words of Jesus. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. So I put together the vision of Jesus on the cross, the deep feeling of his love and compassion for me and then the word of God just absolutely pierced my heart and in that moment I realised that Christianity, Jesus, Abba Father is the way. It's the one true religion I've been searching for. And the irony was that I was now a baptised Hindu in a <laughs> in a um, Hindu nation uh, with no churches around and um, and I'm stuck there. So I'm praying, God, how am I going to get out of here? <laughs> and um, this sense of elation just wasn't passing. It just stayed with me. I, I, it was the highest high you could ever imagine. It didn't harm me. It didn't hurt me. It didn't cost me anything except one step of ob obedience. Mm. 
And um, so the next day, early in the morning, um, in walked an Aussie backpacker by the name of Kim, who was my old girlfriend. She'd got Tony Wheeler's guide to India. She didn't know I was in India. I didn't know she was in India. Um, you know, probably 600 people, 600 million people in India at that stage and the odds if you just did the maths is just phenomenal. And this is the same Kim that you'd met in Bali. That's right, yeah. And yeah. said, well, so we'd, we'd, see you later. Yeah, we'd been in a pretty full-on relationship and then on a whim I just said, goodbye, catch you later. I just want to travel by myself. Mm. And broke her heart and um, she was a very kind, well, she still is. She's married now with kids and um, we've had a bit of correspondence. Very compassionate and uh, genuine person. And uh, she found it in her heart to forgive me and she loaned me $100 to get me out of the cave. (laughs) (laughs) And um, we got back to the next um, larger town and um, it was a bank and I was able to hang around until some funds arrived and she was heading in a different direction. And from there I – oh, the last thing before I left the cave, I told the – um, Yogi Raj, the, the guru, that I'd become a Christian. He looked very shocked. <laughs> and um, I was, and told him I forgave him for stealing my money and um, gave him a hug. So we parted on good terms. I had an amazing love for other people. I, I just, the beggars in the street, the I just had this amazing love for people and wanted to help and serve and so I'd had a heart transplant from being selfish and self-centered and just running after sinful things to just becoming gentle and soft and yeah, just um, really appreciating life and all of what God had done for me. Um, so I'd fallen so much in love with this little Bible that I actually stole it. <laughs> so my first Bible was um, was a stolen one. I realized. Many years later when I met up with the Gideons that they actually sew them into hotels and motels and all over the place hoping that people will actually steal them and take them home. That's part of their their plan. But anyway, um, and I just fell in love with God's word and just devoured it. So from India I went down to um, Sri Lanka and the day I arrived in Colombo, um, a civil war broke out between the Tamil and the Sinhalese. So the Hindu, the Hindu uh, Tamil and the Sinhalese um, Buddhists, who the majority were, they fought each other. There was blood in the street. There was uh, shops burning. There was cars overturned. It was just chaos. And I literally headed for the hills. I got, I got out of town. I was low, running low on funds and I couldn't go back to get more money out of the bank because of the riots. And my dad had always said um, before I left that if you get in trouble, find a church and see if they'll give you charity. So I mm-hmm. saw this church, the lights were on, and inside there was beautiful singing, almost angelic singing. And one side of the church was Sinhalese and the other side of the church was... Um, Tamil. And I thought, well, this is interesting. Outside they're all killing each other. In here they're worshipping God together. And it was a lovely Sinhalese um, 
um, Baptist pastor. Uh, he, he spoke both languages and he preached to each side simultaneously. Um, and that really impressed me. And um, the hospitality of Asians, again, he invited me to stay when I told him my story. So I had a little loft up above his house and every day I would just read, a, he gave me a, a bigger Bible. I'd read all of the Bible and being um, analytical, I was struggling because, you know, in the Old Testament it says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. When you get to Jesus, it's, you know, love your enemies, offer them. They smite you on one side of your cheek, offer them the other side. Uh, they steal your shirt, give them your coat. So I'd go to him and, and say, same book, over here it says this, and on that side it says that. And he, he would then explain the new covenant and the old covenant. And then the next day I'd stumble over you know, a scripture that says, for God chose you, you didn't choose him. And then then I'd sort of say, well, where's free will coming to that? And if God chose me, where's my free will? And he said, well, God's bigger than all of what we know, and he knows that we will choose him. <laughs> <laughs> and he just sets things in place so that we, um, like that small, still voice. Yeah, so... Um, I've seen lots of miracles. I've seen people raised from the dead, literally. I've seen three people come back to life. I've seen um, people healed. I've seen incredible salvations of people coming to know God. And before I became a Christian, I was generous. I used to like handing around um, joints and, and giving people what I thought then was joy. And when I became a Christian, that's all I wanted to do was tell people about how good Jesus is and it's free, it's the best deal. Yeah, so I just love telling people about Jesus. He is very loving. Um, there's a lot of things that have been done in his name that he's got nothing to do with. So people have been hurt um, by Christians, but that's not not Jesus. I describe it as um, Shakespeare was a great playwright, but if you went to a really crummy amateur play and you, you saw it and the prop fell over and people forgot their lines or did it badly, you would judge the, the playwright by the actors. So if there's anyone out there listening and you've been hurt by Christians, um, don't, don't pay too much attention to the crummy actors. Uh, look at the script, look at the playwright. Um, the Gospels are good news and it's free. All you got to do is believe. Amen. Amen, John. Amen. And that, if we look mm. back, that's some um, 38 years ago, mm -hmm. that, that order. And here you are today. I mean, I can hear in your voice the recognition and, the, and a life that's living the love of God yeah. 38 years later. And I'm sure there's been challenges on the way. Challenges. Yeah, different, mm. you know, different things probably have gone right, and some things mm. may not have gone right. Yeah. And here you are, you know, probably yeah. at a different stage of life again. Yeah. Um, so how, you know, looking back and, and carrying all that experience, um, and 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 now you're looking forward at potentially a different phase. Yeah. Um, how, what what sort of perspective does that give you? Well, I'll, I'll 
quite a scripture. Say so Paul talks in terms of when you're a young Christian, you need to be fed on milk. If you an analogy of a baby that can't chew or digest hard things. And I, I had a two-year honeymoon. Like there was not one moment of the day or night where I didn't feel God's presence and his warmth and his love. Um, and right from the get-go, I, there was spiritual warfare going on. Um, the Bible says we fight not against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities. And a lot of those powers are trying to uh, attack our mind and pull down our belief of God or um, being open to uh, searching for him and using um, evolution or rational thought or all the isms um, to diminish the gospel message. So probably three weeks into being a Christian, I started getting tempted and the devil goes around like a sneaky man. He, Because he, I was so much in love with Jesus and so identifying with him, he was my hero, everything. He started slipping in this little thought, well, Jesus is coming back. You're Jesus. Okay. And he's just so sneaky. And I knew from the get-go it was a lie, but he's so tempting, like... Um, what a sneaky way to try to pull down a brand new Christian to convince them of a lie that the person that they love and worship, that they are them. Yeah, that's just his tactic. He's, he's a sneaky liar. Jesus called him the father of all lies. And he said, Jesus said, I come to bring life in abundance. The devil comes to kill and destroy. So he was trying to destroy my faith by coming in on an oblique angle and I just told him to get lost. Um in in a backpackers um, hostel in Sri Lanka, I was reading my Bible and it was an open dormitory and this lady, middle-aged lady, came and asked if she could read my Bible. And I got excited and I said, oh, why is that? Why do you want to read the Bible? Oh, I just want to find out <clears throat> what's going to happen at the end of the world. I've, I've got a daughter and I've been a witch all my life and um, I'm starting to get afraid. And I was able to share the gospel with her. That no matter what we do, if we really say sorry, uh, God can forgive us. You know, one of my favourite verses is, "For God is just and kind to forgive us our sins and to put in us a new and a clean heart." I can go to bed at night with a, a sin problem and say, "God, you change me. I want to be a different person when I wake up." It's grace. It's all of His so that no man would boast. Um, so straight after getting this silly thought that I was Jesus Christ reincarnated or some rubbish like that, which I discarded, um, then I was asleep one night and Satan um, physically pushed down on my chest and tried to stop me breathing. And at the simultaneous time I heard a lion roaring and the devil goes, and I actually read that verse, the devil goes around like a roaring lion. And there was an element of fear that came on me, um, that this evil thing was trying to harm me. And I, I simply said, Jesus, 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 because that was where my faith and my trust was in. And this thing just went away. The next night it 
became even fiercer and I did the same thing. The third night, it totally um, paralyzed me. I couldn't actually physically say Jesus. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't blink. It was full on. Like this thing was just hating me. Like it was just um, wanted to wipe me out. But I couldn't control my mind. So in my mind, I'm just peaceful and I'm just saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Mm. After I'd said Jesus three times, this thing fled like a chihuahua running away from a lion. Mm. And it actually boomeranged. Um, so the evil evil one's plans boomeranged. Because my logic was, if it's that powerful that it can do that to me, and yet it's so afraid of the name of Jesus... How big is my God? How much more powerful is he, the God of the universe? I, I think many in the church and many Christians don't realise how big God is and how powerful he is and um, for whatever reason haven't chosen to use the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So that would be my main message to the to other Christians and, the, and to the churches. Get ready. God's about to do a big thing. And you don't just march into war from being on holiday. You've got to prepare. You've got to clean your rifle. You've got to have your maps and know who your generals are. And it's a season where we need to be getting ready. And a big part of that is to pray, meditate on God's word, hang out with other Christians, build up each other's faith um, and encourage one another. Yeah, so. Hmm. And you also touched on that. And the concept of spiritual maturity as well. Mm. So when you were, yeah. you know, a baby Christian, mm. and yeah. you know, the devil was was there, and and mm. yeah, in a real way, yeah. trying to destroy, you know, mm. the new life that you'd found. Yeah. Um, and I know the scripture talks about, you know, when we're when we're a child, we know the love of God. Mm. Yeah. And then when you you know, become an adolescent or a young adult, mm. then you can resist yeah. the works of, of the enemy. Yeah. So you, you, I mean, you partly describe that in your own mm. experience. Yeah, so the way I see it is um, my hero in, in the scriptures is Paul. Like he's the man of faith. He's the one that does the most to promote grace as a concept. Because he was so much into rules and regs and mm. the legal um, religion of, of Judaism, when he got the message of grace, he really got it. And he, he goes after Peter when Peter starts to go back into circumcision and um, unclean food and he, he calls him a hypocrite. So at the end of his life, Paul can say, I have run the race. Mm. You know, three times I've been whipped I've been imprisoned, I've been chucked out of churches, I've been shipwrecked, I've been bitten by a viper. This is not word for word, but that's these are all the things that happened to him. Mm. And he says, and I, I've been in plenty and I've been in, in want. Mm. There's been times when I've been hungry and there's times when there's been plenty. And he's not skiding, he's just saying, and I've run the race. I've mm. endured, I've got through to, to the end. And Romans talks about endurance, building our character. Um, so I've had a lot of um, hardships. Um, I won't go into them now, but God makes a way. And 
someone in my family was going through a really hard time recently and I was praying for them and wanting to be a helicopter helper and jump in and and God said, my grace is sufficient. I will give them the ability to go through this trial and come out the end a stronger person. I had to just sit with that and he has. This person's come through three-month trial, uh, sleepless nights and health issues and they're a much better person. Um, so I, d- I don't think God causes bad things to happen, but he sometimes pulls back and lets us um, experience hardships so that we learn to lean on him and pray and trust him and our faith is actually built uh, stronger. So, yeah. And, and I think that's, that's probably a good summary. Mm. Of what he wants to do with all of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wants to make us stronger. Mm. He wants to see us grow. He wants yeah. to see us endure, and mm. yeah. reach. I guess reach the end mm. of the journey that he's called us on. Mm. And, and John, I know you're looking forward. There's there's mm-hmm. potentially more journey to go. Yeah. So really appreciate your time today. Mm. You got a, a number of other stories in there, and and you know this podcast mm. is about testimonies of life and related yep. stories so we might have a chance another okay. time mm. to explore some of those yep. testimonies and stories yep. further but I really appreciate your time mm. today mm. thanks Alan. and for those that are listening mm. yep. you, you have the opportunity to hear an mm. amazing testimony mm. of someone in the flesh sitting beside me who i can feel the love of god he's the one that we honor and mm. thank you for spending time with us today john thank you we honor the Lord Jesus. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. This podcast is not sponsored by any group or organization and does not seek or promote endorsements. Our motivation is simply inspiration that you may be inspired by the Spirit of the one true God to know that the objective and narrative coexist that the spiritual and physical are not separated, to increase in understanding and to walk in his way. Though mountains fall, I'll put my trust in you. Though seas may roar, I'll put my